Yeah. I got some notes up here for the younger, uh, younger, young adults, whatever. There's not that, where, where do they all go? All right, morning. Good morning. You all act like it was a bad day yesterday. My apologies to all the Oklahoma fans. Go Tigers. <laughs> I love that. Go Tigers. Which one? Wait a minute. I'm confused. Listen, football's great. Bible's better. Let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We are finishing a series this morning that I started a couple of weeks ago on all I want for Christmas. Um, it, was, it started off to be a very selfish moment when I started writing this, and it still is going to end up sounding selfish. But it's not self-serving. It's something I'd like to see from all of you. And a goal of a pastor is to teach his flock. I'm going to read this. It comes from a commentary at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 4, which we will prayerfully get to today. It says this, This chapter can be summarized as follows. Paul warns Timothy that sooner or later, followers of Christ will fall away from the truth and begin to favor false doctrines. Isn't that sad? However, it is not just to sit around and do nothing. He is to discipline himself to stay true to the word, thus maintaining his godliness. Doing so is required to fulfill a second major duty, guarding the flock. They will succumb to pious-sounding charlatans unless Timothy intervenes. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And I think that's important as we go into this morning's service and dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Uh, and, and the following, we're going to finish all of it this morning prayerfully. It's going to be like a running go to this, but you'll see why as we deal with this. Um, Timothy, in verse 10, it says, for, it is, for, it is, for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is Savior of all men, especially believers. And I think it's important... Oh, sorry, that was verse 10. Verse 6, I'll be all right. I want to start in verse 6. In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. And I think this is a great start as we hit this road running this morning, as we look at the importance of this phrase, is to feed on doctrine. Now, I know a lot of you... Because uh, I've heard stories, and I've been in that story, this has been a good eating season, right? You started at Thanksgiving, and we'll end hopefully in New Year's, and the day after we're going to make a resolution to do what? To lose some weight that we've put on, that we've t- taken this extra cargo on uh, during the season. And I think what we miss sometimes is the New Year resolution we should always have and should always keep is to feed on God's Word. And that's going to be my mantra for this morning as we go into the new year. Are we feeding on God's word? And that's what we need to, because here's what's going on. There's going to be a departure from God's word. I believe it's already already happened. If I were to say, here's the signs of the end coming, I think the number one thing is the departure from God's word. Now, I know it's nothing new. It happened in Timothy's time. It happened before Timothy's time. It's happened in uh, the 3rd century A.D. It's happened in the 11th century A.D. It's happened in the 15th century A.D. We can keep going. It happened last month. We've had constant uh, diversion from the Word of God. But it says 
In verse 1 of chapter 4, let's remind ourselves, it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Some. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. That means I want teachers to teach me what I want to hear. Isn't that great? That's a great place to be. Uh, I've been in college enough times and, and been in it plenty of times. My first chemistry class in college I thought was crazy because I came from a small high school. I don't know if you all know this. I graduated sixth in my class. Sounds like, wow, that's really great. We had 18. Now you think it through. You say, wow, he top third. I'm good. Okay? But when I went to college and my first chemistry class had 300 in it. Had more than my whole high school. But by the time the chemistry class ended, there were 17. I felt like I was back in high school again. Because uh, what happens is the teachers are teaching things that's above what they wanted to learn and what they wanted to hear. And some people were getting kickbacks by taking a class and then dropping it. A whole different story back in the 70s. Um, but the point is, people always have always wanted people to teach them what they want to hear. And they'll say things like, well, I stopped going to that church. They talk too much about sin and death and hell. I wanted to hear about how to have a good time next week and how to overcome financial difficulties, how to have a good marriage and all that stuff. And you th- if you think sex sells in the world, you should see it in church. It'll bring people in. That in the book of Revelation. You know, what's going to happen at the end? Well, if you don't know the Lord, you're going to die and go to eternal hell. That's as easy as I could put Revelation. Okay? That, there's the end of the book. Okay? But there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and if you're a believer, you'll be part of that. Yay! But the, but the problem is, it's the getting there that people don't want to hear that sound doctrine. The first thing Timothy was taught as a young pastor was to be nourished and guided by the very words of God. So if you think about it, this time of the year, we're taking on nourishment. What do we have? What are we taking in? It's important because I think maintaining the truth, if you want one of those profound statements this morning, I think maintaining the truth is the constant single struggle of the church today. Drifting away has always been a real possibility. And if you've been in any church for a long period of time, you could look around and see faces change, people leave, people go different places. And I'm not saying they all leave for that simple reason, that they've fallen away from the faith. But some do. Um, and, it's, and it's hard because what we fail to see is people have not been trained. Now I'm going to talk about a few things this morning because I think Timothy's uh, very... Interesting how it's designed, and it uses words that perfectly line up with this time of the year. Um, it's, it's fascinating, because in chapter 1, it talks about two guys that got shipwrecked in the faith. Hymenius and Alexander, they weren't trained enough to stay within the faith, and they got shipwrecked. And the later in Revelation chapter 3, it talks about this church Timothy was preaching to, was pastoring, mentoring, this little church left its first love. I don't know how many years it was between the writing that Timothy received from Paul and this time that the whole church shipwrecked. But I have a friend that says, if, they, if any church stops teaching the Bible, within 50 years it will be apostate. I say, well, I think the numbers are a lot less today. Uh, and if you don't know this, and go to James, James probably has some better numbers for you, but churches come and go at a 
a phenomenal rate today. Uh, but And Timothy was stre- given the stress by Paul that he had to point out certain things as his prior- priority to his congregants. Any church will drift into apostasy without keeping a focal point on pure doctrine. So how can we solve the problem of false doctrines in a church? That's what our main emphasis is this morning. How can we stop churches from getting into false doctrines? And how do we keep churches uh, in, in, in a place where they're strong in God's way? And this is, this is going to sound really simplistic, but it's hard. Teach only the Word of God. The best way, I'm going to tell you, the best way to detect biblical error is being the Bible. You know what God's Word says, and you'll know the counterfeit and the falseness within society right away by just knowing the Word of God. Timothy was keep on doing what he's been doing, and Paul was going to encourage him. The best friend to a pastor is encouragement. People coming alongside and saying, keep doing what you're doing, we're learning. Keep doing what you're doing because this is what you have to do is stay, keep us on the main uh, highway of biblical understanding. So all I want for Christmas, first focal point this morning is we are to teach and keep doctrine as the focal point of this body of believers so all will keep this idea of God's word as a priority. So if you're making out your New Year's resolution, ready for this? Number one priority. Write this down. You can, I'm going to help you with your New Year's resolution this morning. Keep God's Word first. It should be the priority in, in our lives. And as Timothy has seen, he sees to keep the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. Keep doing what you're doing. Remember in the 70s, I think it was 70s, maybe late 60s, there was a CB. Anybody remember what CBs are? Breaker over 2-4. This is, yeah, remember that? Breaker, breaker. And there's a smoky around the corner. You would always have some little radio in your car that would tell you where the police were kind of thing. And the, I remember the antenna was like 30 feet long, you know, it'd be waving in the wind. And you'd have that constant clicking, but um, the idea was keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. You know, staying in sound doctrine is not easy. It's not easy. People, if you don't believe that, um, if you go in a Christian bookstore, which there's not many of anymore, and you see what's in the top ten bookselling list, there's no depth there. There's no understanding really of God's word. It's fluff for the comfort of the pews. And if you read most of them, they're garbage. They're just garbage because they're not digging into God's word. I know this sounds very uh, bad coming from a pastor, but people got to make books because they got to make what? Money. Yes, make money. We sell lots of books. We make money. Somebody once asked me, well, Alan used to, why don't you write a book? Well, first of all, it costs us a fortune to publish it, and nobody will buy it. And I don't have a problem spending the money, but, you know, whatever. Um, if I wanted to write a book that would sell, I could probably put four or five words in it, and that would be the book. And that's it, because most people need only four or five things, because they can't, can't take much more in. They get overwhelmed by words. Um, but verse 7 says this, it's interesting, we're in 1 Timothy 4, 7, but, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, dis- discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So here's the negative side. First of all, 
when you're keeping the Bible or doctrine, the focal point, something's going to be negative and some things are going to get in the way. The negative things that get in the way is people telling stories, fables. Uh, the word here in Greek is muthos, and muthos are, are, are fables, uh, stories, myths. We, we get our words myths out of this, but it's not really myths. And the reason it's fit for all women, please don't take this wrong, because I know this is, you've got to walk on eggshells with certain things. I'm not blasting old women, but, but at this time in life, old women sat at home, and all they would do is tell stories. And it's nothing wrong. Uh, older women have told great stories over the years, but some of them have nothing to do with the Bible. They're just stories. Uh, if, you, if you were to look up all the five occurrences of this word in the Bible, you'd find two things it does. First of all, it's, it deals with that which is added to Scripture. So when you're talking about these fables, it's things that are added to Scripture. Okay? So when we talk about muthos, or muthos, it's added to Scripture. Secondly, um, well, and if you do this, if you look in the last days, and it says in the last days they won't endure sound doctrine, they'll turn to fables, they'll turn to things that are added to Scripture. Now, if you, you want to weigh a church and what they're doing, find out what they're teaching from. And they'll open up somebody's book and say, let's teach from so-and-so's book, and they will... Spend time in so-and-so's book. Now, it's, it's okay for a guideline uh, in, in very many issues, but sometimes it's just a book. I remember a church I went to for a while was, do, was doing a book on grace by a guy that I didn't even agree with theologically, but they were doing the book. I said, well, let's go outside the book. Let's look at the Bible. And the class was very hard to get them. Let's look at the Bible. The Bible says a lot about grace. I don't care what this guy says about grace. I want to know what the Bible says about grace. So, um, so things are added to Scripture. And secondly, it's fables have to do that which gives a deeper meaning. Now, let me explain something to you. If you're looking for a deeper meaning in Scripture, you're looking for things you're going to make up. You're going to allegorize certain things. You're going to look for what uh, is not there. Be creative with this. Well, this really means this. So let's go for the deeper meaning. And in, even in Jewish uh, commentaries, they look for what they call sod, which is the deeper meaning of Scripture, going beyond what's being said, and let's find out what's being said. So some of them get into numerology, saying these, these words add up to this number, and it means this. And that's, listen, that's, Scripture is meant to be read by a child. Right? Because the Lord said what? Let the children come unto me. Scripture, I, I read Ephesians chapter 6, says, children, obey your parents. It, there's an assumption there. You know what that is, right? That the children are reading the Bible. I think the Wesleys, not that I agree with their theology, but they were taught to read the Bible first. That was their first reader. That's a good place to start. Read the Bible. And uh, we, we see these things. So basically, the, the negative side was they were turning to things that were not Scripture. How many places turn to things today that are not Scripture? Here's what the positive side is, and here's where the difficulty comes in. Ready for the new year? We're going to discipline, discipline ourselves. Discipline. You know what the word is in Greek? Ready for this? The word, Greek word for discipline is gumnazo. Gumnazo. We get our word what? Gymnasium. And some of you would probably say gymnasium. Uh, but gymnasium basically, and it's, it, here's this interesting, it's present active imperative. Timothy is told to get himself in the spiritual gym and keep himself in the spiritual gym. Question is, this is number two, it's got a priority. And number three, are you working out your spiritual life? Are you, are you spiritually in shape? 
And you know what that, that involves? It, it involves making choices. It involves getting involved with the Word of God. It involves continuous training. Nobody disciplines himself and says, I've been to the gym once this year. You want to see that? This is the body you'll have. This is the body. I've even gone to a gym just to visit it and walk by and say, that looks nice. Okay? I watch the guys in the baseball team working out with weights, and my first thought is, should I do this while they're doing this? And I put my hand on a weight, and I go, nope, not happening. <laughs> Try to lift it. <laughs> but you know what that, that requires to physically work out? And it's fascinating that God says in Timothy, through Paul, he compares spiritual workouts and bodily workouts. Now, it's kind of interesting because he says in verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now, some of you that want to be buff, I'm good with that. Some of you who want to work out and do all those things, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would say this, and I'm going to say this nicely as I can. If you have abs now, who cares later? That's just me. I mean, in heaven, nobody's going to be saying, you see my six-pack? <laughs> of course, I would be saying, you see my keg? But God says, I want you to work out godliness. So look at this in verse 8. It says, for bodily discipline is only little profit, but godliness, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds a promise for the present life and for the life to come. You can take it with you. Isn't that great? You get to heaven, you have all this godliness, all this information. You, you, ha- you have a grasp of what's going on. And it's, it's training in godliness. It takes time. Now think about it. Let's compare it to bodily exercise. Because I can do this. Um, if you work out, when do you expect certain advances in your physique to happen? And how much do you have to do to get it to that point? You know, I love the boys. They're always competing with each other. Well, I could do this many reps with this much weight, and I could do this much rep with this much. And I'm looking at them, and they're still boys. They look like boys, you know, which is fine, you know. But they've worked out. They're getting there. They're building up their muscle ability. But you can't really physically see a whole lot yet. And the weight coach will always walk them by the scale and weigh them and see how much more weight they've put on from working out. Now, think if we could do this spiritually. Okay? Think if we could get a spiritual scale and say you've been doing certain things and you've been working out and you're growing in Christ-likeness and they put you on the scale and nothing's changed. Get the picture? So Paul is using a comparison of something that's widely done. People did work out, did train, did do certain things. And not only that, later he'll say you train, you exercise physically. What do you do spiritually? And he's telling Timothy, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to be uh, attuned with all the time. It's, uh, it's fascinating. It says, refuse uh, nothing. It, do, uh, nothing to do with certain things. So this idea with not, in verse 7, nothing to do with worldly fables, I forgot to tell you, is, an, is a word that has to do with exercise. Don't get involved then. Don't exercise your minds in the wrong direction. Discipline yourself. Now, now think of this. You're to not get involved in certain things. You're to get involved in other things that are important like the Word of God. And it is a slow, steady, consistent growth. You may not see it at right off. 
And you may get frustrated because you say, well, I'm not growing at the rate I should and whatever, or compare it with somebody else. Don't do that. But here's what our third thing we should have for the new year that we should be praying for and looking for as we're studying God's word. For God to give us an ear for the word of God. It doesn't come by, Lord, I pray you give me an ear. It comes by spending time in the word of God. It comes by being disciplined, taking yourself to that spiritual gym, and working out. How often, you might ask? I don't have an answer for that. But if all you get spiritually is Sunday morning, two classes, and Wednesday night, one class, just do the math. That's three hours a week. There's 24 hours in a day. There's seven days a week. You've gotten very little for those three hours. And I do encourage you to learn something we've done here and take it home and, and, and absorb it more and work with it and make it your own. But in 2 Timothy 2.23, it says this, Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's your pursuit? Where are you going? What's the object in what you're doing? Obviously, if you're physically working out, you have an object. So, in 220, I believe we all should join the spiritual gym, work out to develop spiritual thinking, put on ear filters so you protect what you hear and what you don't hear. Don't allow your ears to be tickled with someone that's not teaching the Bible and things outside of the Word of God. Train yourself. So how is personal discipline done? How is training arrived at? Let me give you a definition of training. This is tough. Ready for this? This is where it gets tough. Training is the self-imposed, self-imposed, you've got to put it upon yourself. You can't say to somebody, please make me do this, or please help me do this. Uh, It's all about you making a decision. And this training corrects, molds, strengthens and protects the social, spiritual, physical, and mental aspects of your being. So notice what training does. Training develops the you. The all of you. So when you deal with spiritual training, you're not just sitting there pumping weights. You're doing things to deal with your social skills, your spiritual skills, your physical skills, your mental aspects of your being. You will, listen... Growing spiritually helps you grow in every arena of life. And you must choose this discipline or this training for yourselves. Now here's the interesting thing. When I've looked at disciplines, whether it's um, physically or spiritually, when you look at training, whatever area of life it is, it's not something that comes natural. I don't think anybody naturally says, oh, i got to go up and run five miles a day. And I'm not running unless someone's chasing me. That's just how I am. I'm just not running to run. I had a friend that was a cross-country racer. He did all crunch. Every day he'd run like 10 miles. He'd say, Eric, you want to go with me? I thought this was like a, a trip. Eric, the baseball player. I said, yeah, I'll go with you. I made it like a mile, cut through the fields, and was back at school and sitting there waiting when he came. And he said, I said, what took you so long? Because I wasn't going 10 miles. There was no reason to go 10 miles. Well, all I had to go was 90 feet. Okay? I mean, it's it's not in my DNA. I have to be forced to do that. And his forcing was, he was a long-distance runner. 
He had a different motive for what he's doing. In the spiritual life, we're all long-distance runners. This is a marathon we're in. If we get out of the gate and January 1st, we're going to read half the New Testament. Boom! Know what's going to happen January 2nd? You're going to put that baby down. You said, I've read most of what I need to for the rest of the year. I'm going to gas it. I'm done. And what happens is, you don't pick it up till when? June 7th. Because you already read half of it and you haven't spent any time with God. And you're doing a, a, a blitz on yourself that's not doing yourself any spiritual good. Okay? So when we talk about this contrast in this exercise, discipline requires self-control. Wow. Isn't that a mouthful? I've got to control the me. I've got to set time aside. I'm the one that has to set structure and priority. Secondly, discipline is also a change and a challenge. Together. You know how hard that is? That's called, we call it a really good word today. We call it stress. I've decided to discipline myself. Do you know how much stress I'm under? Because I've got to change what I was never doing for a long time. And you're going to feel the pains of it the next couple of days. Right? You're all going to walk funny out of the gym. You go, man, my hammies hurt. My calves hurt. Oh, my, everything hurts. Well, spiritually, you're going to be getting involved in the Word of God and not understand everything. And then you've got to say, well, I've got to grasp this and grasp this idea. And you're going to spend time. So it's a challenge to do that. I know some people, when they do a workout, they come up with a workout plan. You ever see those people? I don't know. It's not me. But they come out with, a, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to arrive. Here's what I want to be in a month. Here's what I want to work on. How many legs I'm going to do. Work on arms. Work on running. I'm exhausted already just reading the list. Spiritually, we can have the same idea. There's nothing wrong with that. Because here's the contrast. Bodily exercise is only good for time. So you work out. You work out in time. People stop working out at certain ages because they get old. People stop working out because they get injured. People stop working out because they lost interest or they can't discipline themselves anymore. But godliness, the discipline in godliness, is for eternity. You take it with you. It's in the direction toward godliness. Direction toward godliness. It's interesting that Paul calls bodily exercise good. It's good. Now, I don't know what Paul was like, and everybody has their own vision of Paul, but I think Paul was pretty healthy. You know, everybody says Paul's a little guy and kind of you know, shabby. I don't know. Paul endured uh, a lot of instances he almost died in. He was also shipwrecked, and he dog paddled I don't know how long. You know, no, 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 no. He wasn't trying to learn to swim. He was trying to stay afloat. Not once, but a couple of times. Paul was flogged 39 times, three times. I don't know about you, I don't want to be flogged five times ever. Okay, I'm just thinking, nope, that's not happening. Okay, Paul did all these things and still survived. Paul says, and used many sporting analogy, I wrestle, I fight. There's things, you know, uh, that Paul used. So Paul understood the physicality of things. But he said, that physicality is good. But spirituality has an impact forever to the soul. Bodily exercise builds up muscles. Muscles. And he calls that of little profit. Little profit. Yeah, you got muscles? Yeah, good. Uh, I'm not knocking guys that work out. I think it's great. Um, Wonderful for them. But here's what he calls godliness. It builds morals. It profits in all things. 
It has a value that it can be put on everything and anything and everything that's involved because you take it and put it into life. I don't know what your muscles do in life. Um, it could do a few things, but it's only a temporary thing. But here's what the promise is with building godliness. It helps you in this present life and in the life to come. I find that fascinating. Verse 9, 1 Timothy 4.9, he goes on. This is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance. Now the question I have is, Paul uses this phrase five times. Most of the times he's looking after the phrase, and sometimes he's saying this is coming before the phrase that ties in with after the phrase. Kind of get what I'm saying? What Paul is basically saying is, here's a truth in action. Here's putting a truth in action. Each statement he makes using this puts an application to what he had before. Think about this. Paul is helping you to take Scripture and put it into action by saying this is a trustworthy statement. And it's not only for the pastor, Timothy, but it's for everyone involved with Timothy's ministry. He says, in verse 10, For it is this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. So here's the practical application to discipline or to training. He says, labor. We labor. Do you realize the Christian life is laborious? I think some people don't understand that. Uh, here's what the word labor means. It's a place that we can work ourselves to a point of weariness, to the point of exhaustion, but not burn out or burn up. I think it's a a fairy tale that came out a few years ago. People can burn out in the ministry. Not if you're doing God's work, because it's laborious. You will work to the point of exhaustion, but God says he can use you. In whatever state you're in, being in the Word and spending time in God's disciplining is a workout. It's exhausting. Right? But notice what he also says. He put this together, and I think this is fascinating. He says, and strive. It is, we labor and we strive. That means being in this discipline is a contention. Know what this word means in in the Greek originally? To contend for a prize. We're in it to win it. You you with me? I think this is a fascinating word. Uh, Know what the word is in Greek? Agonizomai. Agonizomai. You hear the first part of it? Agonizomai. We're going to agonize. It's a very athletic word. When you work out as an athlete, you struggle. You ever heard the thing? Uh... Practice makes you what? That's a lie. I don't know who came up with that. Know what practice does do, though? It builds up muscle memory. So you can do things just doing them because you know you got to do them. We were in the clubhouse the other day, and a kid threw something at me. I caught it. He goes, how'd you do that? No clue. <laughs> muscle memory. Muscle memory. That's all it was. Do things because you've done it so many times. Now think of this in the spiritual life. You have to build up spiritual muscle memory. And that only comes through agonizing through the word of God. It's a, it's a good agonizing. Because Notice what he says. Because we fixed our eyes, fixed our hope, fixed our understanding on the living God. 
We have a prize that waits at the end. We're not doing this. We're not laboring and striving just to do things in life or to to obtain things in life. We've got a goal to be brought to. We struggle because our hope is in a living God. You, You know, here's what Paul did mention often. Being in a pastorate is sometimes the toughest job, the loneliest job, the most difficult job, and the most struggle in any job. Okay? But he says it, it's the most beautiful and glorious because the goal is to grow in godliness and to see people grow in godliness. And, and I think it's a beautiful thing this verse has in us because we, we also have to understand that we're doing it for the living God who is the Savior. Notice what it says at the end of verse 10 because this has been misconstrued by Hundreds of people. We, we have uh, hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. So this demands from us a good Christology and soteriology. Christmas bells? I don't know what that was. Now I totally forgot where I'm at and I quit. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's pretty funny, though. Um, think of this. We have to understand what salvation is about and who Christ is. He is Christ is the Savior of all men. That means congregation is now to say amen. Amen. Christ is the Savior of all men. This deals with the potentiality. Because obviously all men are not saved. God says uh, in T- Timothy also, he wants all men to be saved. And I look around, it ain't happening. I would love to see all men saved. I would love to give the gospel to everybody I can give the gospel to, and they say, yes, that's for me, and show up because i got a seat for them. Okay? Yes, right? But we know Christ on the cross died for everyone. It's the whosoever's. He died for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we know the potentiality is there. But it's only efficacious when someone believes. It becomes personally applicable. So we who believe today sit here. Christ is the Savior of all men, especially mine. Kind of get the picture? Uh, Christ made it possible, because of his death on the cross, that all can be saved. Yet if you're not saved today, he is not your Savior. The potential's there, but he's not. If you are saved today, all you had to do is what? Look, go back to a couple of chapters. So 1 Timothy 1.15. This will help with it. A little bit, because Timothy does have a lot of theology packed into it. Verse 15 says this. First Timothy, wow, it's fascinating. It says what? This is a trustworthy statement. So there's application coming after this, right? Deserving full acceptance. In other words, not only is it trustworthy, but you've got to accept this because there's no other way around it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes, he did. But notice Paul made it personal. He didn't say all sinners and then leave it. Among whom I am the foremost of all. I think you and I could say that. I don't leave it. That's, that's Paul's statement. Paul's number one. You can only be number two. I think we're all foremost of sinners. Christ died for us. Of whom I am the foremost of sinners. I believe that more than anything, because as you spend time in the Word of God, we're all not savable and likable just because of who we are. It's because of who Christ is, right? So all I want for Christmas, number four, that would help us for next year, 
is to be dedicated to the Word of God, discipline in all things of God, and desiring all men to be saved. So get those three D's down. Dedicated, disciplined, and desire. Can you imagine what next year would be like if we all are dedicated to the Word of God, disciplined in all things of God, and desire for all men to be saved? Wow. This little church could change just Tulsa, at least. Verses 11 through 16 deal with something kind of personal for Timothy. Paul's going to give Timothy some personal challenges that I think work for us today because we all need to be challenged. The first thing he says in practical priority of Timothy's life, number one, practical priority number one in verse 11, he's saying preach, I love this, prescribe and teach these things. The first thing I saw when I saw prescribe, it's like, what's the thing that comes to your mind? You're sick and you need a doctor to give you a, a script so you can go get some medicine filled. Uh, that's, that's interesting, but the Greek word is not even close to that. It's paraangelo, basically to have a message alongside somebody else. To have a message alongside. Uh, Paul, Paul is instructing Timothy, kind of take his meds, but what he's doing today is he's going to give direction. He's going to give direction. He's going to come alongside people and give direction. Give them a message. It's interesting, in, in Matthew chapter 10, the first occurrence of this word, Jesus is instructing the twelve. He gave them direction in life. You are to go out and do this. So we can look at this word prescribed to give direction. To give direction. Uh, teaching today and preaching today has very little direction in this message. Most messages today are intriguing, uh, entertaining, not not convicting and very much not in depth, but they are to give direction. Secondly, is to teach. Uh, this word is repeated many times throughout this next section. Uh, teach, teach. I don't know what else to do with the word teach. Paul has given this instruction to Timothy in the present imperative. That means you are to continually teach. Uh, I know I've been called this a bunch of times. You're a preacher. No, I'm not. Uh, people have said to me, what have you preached on Sunday? Nothing. And I love when people look at me like, nothing? You preached nothing? Yeah, because I taught. And teaching, coming, giving direction and teaching, these are uh, to be the habits of a pastor, to transmit a message with instruction, to teach others to learn. If you walk out of here and say, I did not learn anything, we're not teaching. I can make you mad so you can go t- go search the scriptures. I'm good with that. But Timothy's number one priority that's given here is he is to prescribe and teach these things. Priority number two. Timothy, it's not about your age. I love that. It's not about your age. It's about your information. In verse 12 it says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now Timothy is probably between 30 and 40. I don't know if that's considered youth anymore. Uh, or or considered really youthful today, but he says, don't let people look on look down on your youthfulness. Uh, earn respect, Timothy. Here's how you earn respect: not saying I'm into pastorship and I am your pastor. Listen to me. He doesn't say that. He's saying earn respect by how you live your life. That's a fascinating thing. Could you imagine giving p- pastors first school class is how to conduct your life so others are looking. And others want to be like that. He says this, but rather in speech, conduct, love, 
faith, and it says the faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Now, I don't want to, I'm not going to take a lot of time to say this is what each one means. We pretty much get the idea. I want to go to the last one. I think it's fascinating, because the last one of all these in here has to do with tupos, T-U-P-O-S. Write that down, tupos. We get our word, very easy from this, we can see it, type. Now, most of you type today on your cell phone, right? And some of you are wicked fast. I've seen you. I know, because I send text messages out to family, and I get back a book in like seconds. I write LOL, and I get back like 16 pages in a dissertation. I go, how did you just do that? Okay? My dad taught typing in school. Fascinating thing. My dad was business education. He taught kids how to type. My dad could type 110 words a minute. Perfect. Double-spaced. Zero errors. But I did know something about my dad's work. It left an impact on the little rolling thing that her, his machine had. That every time he smacked that thing, and, and my dad didn't have an electric typewriter, so don't look at it. He had one of those mechanical ones, that pop, 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 and that thing was making noise and shaking table. The whole house used to shake when my dad was typing. But if you look at the roller, you could tell the letters he smacked into that thing. See, what it says, to show yourself an example, are you smacking people's lives and making an impact? Are you smacking so people say, that made an impact? And that's what we're to do. Not only Timothy, not only your pastor, we're all to have an impact and leave a mark on people's lives. What is your reputation outside of this building? And how did you gain it? Somebody says, well, you don't know what this guy did in 1963. I don't care. What's your reputation overall? I'm not looking at an incident. I'm looking at a life. And this impact, this example that you're making, can be negative and can be positive. You want to be positive. You must strive to be positive. Number three, verse 13. Timothy's priority as a pastor. Number three, fascinating. Until I come, until I come, Paul hasn't come here, by the way, just so you know. So since Paul hasn't come here, we've got to do the same thing that he said. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Isn't that fascinating? Open up the book. You know, in temples today, they, they have Torah readings and half Torah readings. Every week, they open up the book. If they can do it, why can't we? I want to encourage you next year, put on your list, read the Bible. I would love you to read it through. You know, read it through. I encourage people, if you're married or you have a family, read it with the family. If you don't make it through, so what? You've opened up the book. You've read it. We should be reading and teaching the Word of God, giving, giving ourselves to exhortation and teaching. Isn't that fascinating? We're, again, he brings up the act of teaching. So all we want for Christmas is for believers to gather together regularly where they can listen to the Word of God, to think the Word of God, to act on what they've been taught. However, I am going to put a disclaimer. I put it in big letters on my, on my notes, not little tiny. Disclaimer. However, if we do this and we're consistent with this and we don't entertain people, we'll never please the masses. Isn't that sad? So we looked at Paul's pastoral priorities. I want to look at some of Paul's personal priorities. Verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbytery. He had a spiritual gift, 
And it's kind of structured in the ways Timothy's neglecting this a little bit. He's kind of worried, go back to the other thing, people are saying something about his age, so he's not doing his spiritual gift. Now, all of you who are believers today have a spiritual gift or more. Okay? I don't care who you are. People have told me, you don't know, I'm too old to do this. Well, God's given you something to do. Do it. We all have different gifts in different areas. Uh, And when God gives us that gift, we should not be neglecting or careless with that gift what he's bestowed upon us. This gift is often, and I want us to understand this, it's evident in the congregation, because it says, by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. In other words, when a pastor is ordained within his body of believers, they all put hands on him, could be physically or a spiritual understanding, and identify him as somebody that can teach this flock. Whatever flock. They say he's going to be our teacher. It's horrible when people got to have a pastor come in that's assigned to him by the affiliation. That's horrible. But Timothy is encouraged here, to, and, it, and Paul addresses him about this one spiritual gift that he's been given that's special to the flock, and that's important to the flock, that they've agreed on in this matter, that Timothy, at this instance, is their pastor, and he's to be diligent in the use of that gift, as we all should be. We all have to identify our gift. Here's how you identify it. Do what God puts on your heart and do it diligently. Whatever it might be, it may be making phone calls to people, it may be making meals once in a while, it may be coming alongside somebody just to encourage them, it may be coming in to uh, the office here and answering the phone once in a while, cleaning something, picking up, whatever it might be. We've all given some kind of spiritual gift, and one of the main ones we have is to teach other people what we have, the hope within us. Isn't that a great gift? And you say, well, you pastor, you don't know, I'm a little fearful. Open your mouth and let God deal with you. And you'll be surprised at people's answers as you open your mouth and talk to them. So number one priority for Timothy, his personal thing, was to not neglect his spiritual gift. Secondly, verse 15. Take pains with these things. <laughs> take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. This, guy, this has got to be the source of Timothy's life. I'm going to tell you something. This is going to be a little personal. I like to read. I didn't, as a young kid, I didn't like to read that much. I read some sports magazines, uh, Archie comics. Well, all the comics. I love comics. You know why I love comics? They had pictures. <laughs> you can go through them real fast. You can read them real fast. I read some sports things. I could tell you the first book, full book, cover to cover I read was 11th grade. 11th grade. I can even tell you what the book is. I have one of the original copies in my office still because it says, look, you read this book. When the teachers used to say we have required reading, I'm I'm giving myself away here. I was the best cheat there ever was. I could read the first chapter, the last chapter, and tell you the book because I could make up things for five pages and the teacher was happy. She figured I, I read the book. I had no understanding of the content, the climax, the whole story. I could... So I went back later and had to read the classics because I didn't. I did the... And sometimes it hit a middle chapter. Those yellow books are really good. Anybody remember the yellow books? Clef notes. I love Clef. I don't know who he is. Okay, I made it through high school English. I was horrible in high school English. It, it weighted my whole thing down. Math was a piece of cake. But see what the Lord did? He says, the more you spend time in my word, I'll give you what you haven't had. It wasn't magic. I spent time reading and reading and reading. I read three books last week. 
There weren't big books. I mean, no, they weren't like encyclopedia type books. But I read three books last week. I go, like this. And I would have never done that as a kid. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it's not easy. But our source as a pastor has to be meditating on God's word and God's words and things that people write about and different things that are going on. We've got to be meditating on God's word. David did it. It's good enough for David. It should be good enough for us. So we meditate night and day, uh, which helps develop the gift that God has given us. And therefore, the spiritual journey that we're on will be evident to others. Now, I'm not an Augustine fan. But I'm going to give you an Augustine quote. I want to end a year because I want to end it with him. No. Augustine once met somebody on the street that he had known years earlier. And she came up to him and said, Augustine, the same Augustine I know. And he says, no, I am so different an Augustine than you knew before. I've grown so much from that old Augustine. I'm not the same man you knew. And we should all say that. I'm not the same person I was X amount of years ago. Now, Augustine had theological issues off the, off the, you know, Richter scale, but he did recognize he was different by interacting with God's word. Question is, are we different? Do people see it? Do people understand that we are growing as we can in Christ likeness? And I think as a piece, people see a dedication of each other, they want to be more dedicated. I think it's contagious. I think it's very contagious. Last priority is verse 16 of Timothy's, his personal priority. Pay a close attention to yourself and your teaching. That's, that's, that's hard. That's hard. Um, I know some of you are very critical. Period. I'm not saying anything that you're critical of me or anything. You're just critical. We're all critical of certain things, right? I don't know about you all. I yelled at the TV like crazy yesterday. Nobody heard me, but I was doing some yelling. Because I was critical of some of the things that there was going on. Let's see, the coaching, the calls, the playing. I was just critical. Okay. I wasn't confessing because it was nothing sinful. I was just like, you guys can do something better about this. But I don't think you realize, or many people do, how critical pastors are of themselves sometimes. People said, have you ever heard what you taught on that? It was really good. And I said, I don't listen to myself. I would just never do this again if I had to listen to myself. Because I have to pay close attention to what I'm teaching, and I know I've made mistakes. Often. Often. You say, oh, really? Yeah. I stopped perfection a long time ago. You know, as a baby, everybody said, oh, look, he's perfect. That ended. And when we talk about paying close attention, it's basically saying, this is what we take up as a mantra. We're going to notice what we're doing. Take note of what we're doing and correct what we're doing. And it says to your teaching. This is the third time this word's using. What's he paying close attention to? His physicalness? No, his teaching. I once said this to somebody a long time ago. I taught the Gospel of John, I think, in the early 1990s. I hope that got destroyed somewhere in some, what is it called? Some uh, high-tech cloud somewhere. Just got annihilated because I think I did a horrible job. Because why? Prayerfully, I've grown that I would never say some of the things I taught in John years ago. And prayerfully, what I'm doing here in First Timothy, ten years from now, I'll fix. Or you can spend time in it and find the mistakes. I think it's fascinating. He also says, continue in them. 
This is to be a continuation. Persevere, he says. Persevere in these things. Stay on. Keep on keeping on. Pay attention. Teach them. Persevere in them. And then he goes to the final clause. For this will, for, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both to yourself and for those who hear you. Now, I'm not giving you guys personal assurance of, of, of spiritual salvations in what I teach. That would be a horrific doctrine, wouldn't it? Please, everybody say yes, you've been listening. That would be a doctrine of demons, okay? What, what I think, it, it believe, and I believe it says, is that as we teach and as we stay uh, on in the ministry, and that doesn't lead us astray, and that keeps us faithful to the doctrine within us, and helps us grow, and influences, and gives a stronghold, what it does more than anything, it keeps us from the demonic teachings at the beginning of the chapter. I have saved you by teaching the Word of God from the doctrine of demons and, and, and old white women's fables. Because I've taught you the very words of God and I've saved you or delivered you out from those false teachings. You can identify false because you've been taught the right stuff. And you can go to another church and say, eh, these guys don't know what they're doing. Or you can say, God, you know, if God moves you to a different place in the world, and say, Pastor Eric has led us. We've looked at the Word of God. We have this in us and we understand this. This is wrong what's being taught here. And walk out. It's as easy as that. Now I want to do something to review real quick, and then we'll close, and I'll see you next year. What? Next decade? decade? Yeah, that's right. 2020. I want to give you a few of a few summary. Ten points. I, we're going to get ten points. Ten quick points on all I want for Christmas. Okay? Recap. Number one, only God's word, period. Study helps are great, but God's word only. Think about that for a minute. Secondly, note to know God's family expectations. What does God expect of us in the local church as a body of believers? What does he expect? Third, now I kind of lied because I said I have ten, but three is like ten different points. So, The third one is we, we as believers are to esteem the truth, teach the truth, read the truth, Hear the truth, obey the truth, meditate on the truth, study the truth. To stand up and to stand out because of the truth. That's point three. Point four. The ecclesia, the church, is a place where these truths are provided, proclaimed, protected, and promoted. Fifthly. And if you remember last week, I did this twice purposely. So you can write this twice. Fifthly, to know doctrine so well, you immediately identify error. To be fully grounded in the truth. You can identify error the second somebody opens their mouth because you say, I can't put a Bible verse or Bible understanding with what they just said. Sixthly, to be biblically based believer burgeoning on God's on the Word of God. Do you feast at God's table. Seventhly, to keep and teach and to teach and keep doctrine as the focal point of the body of believers, especially this body. That's what we're talking about. So all two will keep this as their priority. That will be when we walk out of here, people want the same priority we have. 
Eighth, for all to give an ear to the word of God, to refuse or just say no. Remember those that campaign that went out to say no to drugs? How about just say no to wives' tales, old wives' tales, fables, and doctrines of demons? Just say no. You know how you say no? Get out. Pull a Joseph. Joseph's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He wanted to escape sin. What did he do? He ran. Ninthly, to be dedicated to the Word of God, disciplined in the things of God, and desire all men to be saved. Lastly, thank you for your endurance, all of you. <laughs> Last one, believers are to gather together regularly where they can listen to the Word of God, to think the Word of God, and to act on what they have been taught. That's what I want for Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we spent in 1 Timothy understanding the priority you gave a young pastor. But Father, it's more than just the pastor. It's the people he affects. It's the people they affect. Father, the word of God never draws nigh, never fails, never, never is in a void. Father, we know that the word of God is your voice speaking to us and help us to be people of the word. And as we walk out this morning and head into a new year, Father, help these to be our priorities. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be dismissed.